0: Welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the trauma module from the General Surgical Curriculum, and the operation or topic we'll be covering today is hollow viscous injuries and pelvic trauma. And we are once again joined by the marvellous Ben Finlay to help us go through this topic. Thanks for having me. So we might continue on from our last episode where we were talking about how we would address individual organ issues at the time of a trauma laparotomy. And Ben's going to start us off by talking about assessing the gastrointestinal tract and management of injuries to the GIT.
1: Thanks, Amanda. So I thought we'd spend some time talking about the GIT, so more specifically stomach, duodenum, small bowel, and colon and rectal injuries. In general, first, viscous injuries may present early or late in the trauma patient. So they may be immediately apparent in a patient who presents with peritonitis at the time of their trauma presentation. It may be obvious that they've got free fluid or free gas on their trauma CT or the injuries the patient presents with may leave you with a high index of suspicion of a possible hollow viscous injury that isn't immediately apparent but becomes apparent later uh, during their hospital stay or a period of observation. So it is an important thing to keep in mind that hollow viscous injuries aren't always uh, immediately recognised, but you do need to keep uh, an eye out for them. So if we move on specifically first to the stomach, the stomach. The stomach isn't a commonly injured hollow viscous with blunt trauma, but in penetrating trauma is obviously uh, able to be injured. It may be suspected based on blood in a nasogastric tube placed during a trauma call. So when we're looking at the stomach, obviously it sits in the upper part of the abdomen, so it's important to maximize your exposure of the stomach by Extending your laparotomy incision all the way up to adjacent the ziphy sternum and sometimes excising the ziphy sternum can be helpful. Use a fixed retraction device and uh, mobilise the left lobe of the liver out of the way by dividing the left triangular ligament. You need to assess uh, all parts of the stomach, including the GOJ and the posterior wall. So to do this, you should open the gastrocolic omentum through the avascular area. You can also open the gastrohepatic ligament and use your fixed retraction device to be able to examine all areas of the stomach. If you see a hole in the anterior part of the stomach uh, in a penetrating trauma, this should prompt a search for a hole in the posterior wall because that's not something you'd want to miss. In terms of repair, as we know, the stomach's very well vascularised and and heals in a forgiving way for the surgeon. So small injuries can be debrided and uh, repaired primarily. If you've got a larger defect, that could be repaired primarily or resected with a linear cutting stapler in a wedge resection or sleeve fashion, uh, depending on the nature of the injury, just being sure that you're not narrowing the stomach at the GOJ or the incisura. If you've got a large distal injury that you can't repair primarily, you may consider a distal gastrectomy or performing something like a pyloroplasty-type closure.
0: I think in a procedure where you're doing damage control, you just want to control the contamination and then think about what definitive repair or reconstruction you might need down the track if you have a pretty significant injury or lots of devitalized tissue.
1: Moving on to duodenum. Sounds good. All right. So the duodenum, as we know, this is a mostly retroperitoneal structure Uh, That's intimately associated with the head of the pancreas. So trauma to the duodenum may mean pancreatic trauma and it may be associated with biliary tract injuries as well. In general, this can be a very difficult area to deal with and I think calling in an HPB surgeon's assistance is is often very helpful. And I think for our exam, if this comes up, I'm going to, uh, to adopt a damage control approach to these type of injuries. A duodenal injury may be suspected based on your trauma CT scan. So you may see duodenal wall thickening, periduodenal fluid, diminished enhancement of a part of the duodenal wall or extravasation of oral contrast if you've used oral contrast in a trauma CT. It may result from both penetrating and blunt trauma Penetroidine trauma is is a common way that the duodenum is injured, but this is uncommon in Australia. In blunt trauma, you'd suspect duodenal injury with a significant blow to the epigastrium. At laparotomy, you might suspect a pancreatico duodenal injury if there's bile leak, fat necrosis or a large retroperitoneal hematoma. So it is important to fully assess the duodenum at the time of laparotomy. And we talked briefly about this last time, but you should perform a cockers manoeuvre to mobilise the duodenum and ins- inspect both the uh, anterior and posterior surfaces of the duodenum.
0: You can continue that down to a right medial visceral rotation to get a better look at the third and fourth parts as well, because a simple cockers may not give you full exposure.
1: As with all traumatic uh, injuries, there is a double AST grading system. And I did want to talk through that because I think it's helpful in guiding management Even if you don't necessarily remember all aspects of the grading. So, duodenal injuries can be classified as one to five. Grade one injury is a hematoma involving a single portion of the duodenum or a partial thickness laceration. And a grade two injury is a hematoma involving more than one portion of the duodenum or a laceration with disruption of less than 50% of the circumference of the lumen. So, a hematoma of the duodenum may be seen on CT and this in isolation could be managed non-operatively with observation. Often these hematomas enlarge and can cause obstructive symptoms so the patient would need endoscopic insertion of a distal nasojejunal feeding tube and a nasogastric tube for venting and from what I've read these hematomas often self-resolve within three weeks so it's just a a matter of waiting it out. Larger hematomas may need operative drainage. Small lacerations of the duodenum can be repaired primarily, um, and it's suggested that this is done with a single layer absorbable uh, suture closure without tension, and, and I'd definitely leave a drain in that situation. Grade three injuries are a disruption of 50 to 75% of the circumference of the second part of the duodenum or uh, 50 to 100% circumference disruption of the first, third, or fourth parts of the duodenum. And this is where it starts to get a bit more complicated. It's important in this situation to evaluate for ampullary injury, because that may complicate your repair, and we need to ensure that there's um, adequate drainage of bile and pancreatic secretions. Your options for repair in this situation include a damage control approach with drains and shipping the patient off to an HPB specialist, or you can think about doing a primary repair with pyloric exclusion and a feeding jejunostomy, or performing a Roux-en-Y duodeno jejunostomy. Amanda, do you know much about pyloric exclusion and Roux-en-Y duodeno jejunostomy?
0: I think in this situation, I would be thinking of it more as a difficult duodenal stump or large duodenal ulcer. So pyloric exclusion for me would be using a TA stapler through the pylorus and doing a gastrogegenostomy in order to have feeding. I don't know a lot about duodenal unless they're saying to, like you do at a Whipples when you do a pylorus preserving and stapling across the first part of the duodenum and doing your anastomosis there. The other option in these situations would be like you would do with a difficult duodenal stump where you can cobble it around a drain, leave some big drains and uh, ship them out, as you say, <laughs> um, and making sure you're thinking about feeding.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's a very sensible approach. Uh, just for the sake of completeness, I did a bit of reading around uh, pyloric exclusion. And, of course, the, the purpose of pyloric exclusion is to protect your duodenal repair you can use a TA stapler as you've said but uh, i found quite a nice description of a pyloric exclusion which is described as performing a gastrotomy along the distal greater curve of the stomach uh, and then transgastrically you use a one proline suture to sew the pylorus closed and then you use that gastrotomy to perform your gastrojejunostomy with a with a loop of jejunum brought up so I thought that's quite neat, and you expect the pylorus to reopen in six to twelve weeks, so they don't need a revision operation. In terms of a Roux-en-Y duodenogastrectomy, like a duodenectomy, where you're preserving the pancreas, so you can use it for injuries after D2. So if the injury is to D3 or D4, you can divide the duodenum at that point and then bring a Roux limb up and do an end-to-end anastomosis from D2 onto jejunum and then do your enteroenterostomy to restore continuity. So just to finish off grade four and five, so grade four is disruption to more than 75% of the circumference of D2 or involving the ampulla or distal bile duct and grade five is a massive duodenopancreatic disruption or, or devascularization of the duodenum. So Certainly in those situations damage control surgery is appropriate and a emergent whipples is described, but I don't think that's something I'd be doing. Shall we move on to small bowel, Amanda?
0: Yes, sounds good.
1: Small bowel injuries are common in blunt trauma. And uh, during the trauma laparotomy, it's important to have a systematic approach to examine the small bowel for injury. What's your approach, Amanda, to examining the small bowel?
0: So my approach is the two-hand, four-eye technique. So you have one person running the small bowel and flipping it from side to side, all the way from the DJ flexure to the ileocecal valve. And both you and your assistant are looking at the bowel. So you have four eyes, two sets of eyes, looking at the bowel. And you want to look at the small bowel as well as the mesentery because mesenteric injuries and hematomas can cause devascularized segments uh, down the track if you don't address them.
1: Yeah, I really like that approach. And I think as you're going along, you should mark any side of injury um, with a Babcock or other atraumatic faucet and not do anything about the injury until you run the whole small bowel. And often I do that twice to make sure that nothing's been missed and then you can make a safe decision about how to proceed. So with small bowel injuries, serosal tears and small lacerations are often amenable to primary repair. Um, you just need to ensure that you're not narrowing the small bowel lumen. So you may like to employ a strictureplasty technique and close these transversely. If there's areas of transected or devitalized bowel, these should be resected and re anastomosed when it's appropriate for that patient and any mesenteric hematomas need to be assessed as to whether or not they're expanding and whether or not they're compromising the vascularity of the bowel because that may require a small bowel resection as well. I also think it's important to document the location of all injuries from the DJ flexure or the ileocecal valve and document any length of bowel you're resecting and the length of residual bowel. So now moving on to the colon, what's your approach to assessment and management of colonic injuries, Amanda?
0: So in a similar way to running the small bowel, you need to assess the entire colon, this may involve mobilisation of the retroperitoneal aspects of the colon, so ascending and descending colon, in order to be able to examine both anterior and posterior surfaces, as well as having a look again at the mesentery to make sure you're not missing a mesenteric injury.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think it's useful to think about colonic injuries in terms of non-destructive and destructive injuries. So non-destructive injuries are those that are less than 50% of the circumference of the bowel without any devascularisation. And in these scenarios, a primary repair is usually safe and that's supported by evidence. If you've got a destructive colon injury which has loss of more than 50% of the bowel wall circumference or leads to a devascularised segment of bowel, this requires a segmental colonic resection and depending on the patient you've got in front of you, you're going to make a decision about performing a colostomy, a primary repair, or a primary repair with proximal diversion. I think most surgical trainees should be familiar with these principles from their colorectal work. But just to be explicit, diversion should be considered if a patient is shocked, if they've got significant associated injuries, if there's peritonitis or peritoneal contamination if they're requiring blood transfusion of more than four units or they're a comorbid patient. There are high rates of complications associated with colonic injury, so it is worth spending some time thinking about your repair. And so we should finish off, last but not least, with rectal trauma. The rectum is approximately 15 centimetres long and has intraperitoneal and extraperitoneal components It's important to consider the location of the injury when thinking about how to manage a rectal injury. Rectal trauma can occur due to penetrating trauma or it may be associated with blunt injuries due to a pelvic fracture causing a traumatic laceration. I've also seen significant rectal trauma from uh, rectal foreign bodies. So you may suspect a rectal injury if a patient has PR bleeding if there's blood on the glove at rectal examination, a patient with peritonitis, or there may be clues on a CT scan. If you're suspecting a rectal injury, you should consider the role of sigmoidoscopy or a CT with rectal contrast or a gastrographin enema to give more information. And in an operative scenario, if you're considering a rectal injury, don't forget to put the patient in stirrups so that you can access the perineum.
0: And I think that's a really good point that you wouldn't mobilise the rectum and, you know, enter the TME plane and inspect the rectum visually. You'd use these other techniques to have a look at the extraperitoneal part of the rectum to see if there's an injury.
1: Exactly. So extraperitoneal injuries can be very difficult to access and repair because often they're too low to repair transabdominally and too high to repair transanally. So the rule of thumb in extraperitoneal rectal injuries is faecal diversion, and that should be with a well-constructed loop sigmoid colostomy. Sometimes if there's associated more proximal injuries, these patients require a Hartmann's, but resection isn't required usually for an extraperitoneal rectal injury. A lot of the older literature talked about rectal washout and presacral drainage.
0: The four Ds.
1: Exactly. This isn't something that seems to be used in contemporary practice.
0: Mm. The four Ds were direct repair, drainage with presacral drainage, diverting colostomy and distal rectal washout. Uh, and this is based on sort of wartime military data, but you're right, we don't really do that anymore the principles are diversion or if you can access it transanally and do a primary repair that's also an option but i'd be calling a friendly colorectal surgeon if i had a patient with significant rectal trauma for sure
1: and just to finish off intraperitoneal rectal injuries are managed like a colonic injury so uh, most are suitable for primary repair but you may require a uh, resection mm-hmm.
0: So next topic we're going to cover today is pelvic fractures. Motor vehicle accidents are the most common cause of pelvic fractures in Australia. And up to 40% of patients presenting with pelvic fractures will need blood transfusions due to blood loss associated with the fracture. Pelvic fractures are often high energy mechanisms. So they are associated with other injuries, including intra-abdominal, urogenital, chest and head injuries as well. The anatomy of the pelvis is essentially that it's a ring structure which is composed of the ilium, ischium, pubic bones and the sacrum or coccyx. And the actual pelvis itself doesn't have any inherent stability, but it's stabilized by ligamentous structures. So the anterior sacroiliac and sacrospinous ligaments, the sacrotuberos ligaments, And the posterior sacroiliac ligaments. And fractures through the pelvis and disruption of these ligaments can cause an unstable pelvis. In terms of pelvic injuries, there is a couple of classification systems that are used. The two classifications are the Young and Burgess classification, which is basically describing injuries based on the direction and location of the force that's applied to the pelvis. And then the tile classification, which is based on the fracture pattern and helps you judge the stability of the pelvic ring. From what I understand, the Young and Burgess classification is used most commonly in Australia and also most commonly used by orthopedic surgeons. I also think it's a lot easier to understand than the tile classification, so that's the one that I'm going to use for the exam. So running through the Young and Burgess classification there's three different groups that are based on the location and direction of the injury. So the first group is the APC or anterior posterior compression injuries. The second group is the LC or lateral compression injuries. And the last group is the VS or vertical shear injuries. So the first group was the anterior-posterior compression injuries. And the hallmark of these injuries are that there's pubic diastasis and plus or minus disruption of the sacroiliac joints. And basically this causes external rotation of the hemipelvis and increases the volume of the pelvis. So you can lose a lot of blood into the pelvis with these injuries. And the most common mechanism that causes these injuries is a head-on motor vehicle collision, which causes that anterior-posterior compression, as the name suggests. And so the APC injuries are split up into type 1, type 2, and type 3. Type 1 is where there's less than 2.5 centimeters of widening of the pubic symphysis. Type 2 is where there's more than 2.5 centimeters of widening. And type 3 is where there is symphysial widening plus disruption of the anterior and posterior sacroiliac ligaments. So this is your classic open book pelvic fracture, and it can be unilateral or bilateral. The second group was the lateral compression. So this is a side impact such as a T-bone in a car or a car versus pedestrian injury. And the hallmarks of this injury is that there is lateral compression with sacral buckle fractures and transverse pubic rami fractures. So again, it's split up into three types. So LC1 is posterior compression of the sacroiliac joint without ligament disruption. Type 2 is posterior sacroiliac ligament rupture and sacral crush injuries or iliac wing fractures. And these are unstable. And then the last is a type 2 injury with an open book pelvic injury as well. And then the last one is the vertical shear group. And this happens when patients fall from a height, so jumping off high buildings, for example, with impact on the pelvis through the long bones. And you get a vertical force to the hemipelvis. And so the hallmark is that there's vertically orientated fractures through the pubic rami, plus or minus sacroiliac joint disruption. And that side of the hemipelvis is displaced superiorly. And these are both rotationally and vertically unstable fractures. It's worth looking up a picture of the different X-ray findings or what these fractures actually look like, and I think it would definitely be fair game for them to ask something like this in the exam. In terms of diagnosis of pelvic injuries, there are certain mechanisms of injury that would make you suspicious for pelvic fractures, as we've just talked about. Other potential signs that could make you suspicious include perineal or scrotal hematomas, seeing blood at the urethral meatus, If there's a leg length discrepancy, lacerations in the groin, perineum or sacral area. And you can do examination, including a PR examination looking for blood in the rectum or a high riding or floating prostate. Um, And you can also do vaginal examination looking for lacerations, as well as just general palpation of the bony pelvis feeling for boggy areas or areas of tenderness They do talk about a pelvic spring or palpating the pelvis where you're trying to, um, with your hands on the ASIS, either open or posteriorly displace the pelvis. This can be risky in somebody who hasn't done it before because you can increase the space in the pelvis and uh, cause further bleeding or disrupt a clot. So it should only be done if you're confident with that procedure.
1: I think in reality... A lot of the patients that present with pelvic fractures have a high energy mechanism and they're placed in a pelvic binder pre-hospital. And then usually these patients are proceeding to further imaging. So assessment of pelvic stability clinically is often not performed.
0: Mm. And as part of your primary survey, we're getting pelvic x-rays, which are pretty good at diagnosing or indicating that there could be a pelvic fracture. Could you tell us how you apply a pelvic binder,
1: Ben? So the principle of a pelvic binder is to bring the legs together and reduce the volume of the pelvis so as to limit bleeding. So they should be applied at the level of the greater trochanters and applied firmly but not so tight as to cause other injuries. In the absence of a formal pelvic binder, even a bed sheet can be used.
0: And interestingly, I read that pelvic binders are really good for those anterior-posterior compression injuries and also quite good for vertical shear injuries, but you do need to um, put the leg on traction before you put the binder on, but they're not very helpful for the lateral compression injuries.
1: Yeah, applying them to a lateral compression injury can actually worsen fracture displacement because of It applies force in the direction of the injury, so it can even cause uh, vascular injury. The
0: other imaging modality that you can do in a patient where you suspect a pelvic fracture and you see blood at the urethral meatus is a retrograde urethrogram. And in patients with um, pelvic fractures, this is mandatory when placing a catheter in my mind, especially if there's blood in the perineum or urethral meatus. We'll talk about how to perform that a little bit later in the episode when we talk about urethral injuries. So management of pelvic fractures. We've talked all about these different classification systems, but in reality, the management depends on the stability of the patient. In a hemodynamically unstable patient, you're going to apply a pelvic binder and activate your massive transfusion protocol and perform hemostatic resuscitation. The management options for controlling pelvic bleeding in a patient with a pelvic fracture include preperitoneal pelvic packing and angioembolization. And in a severely unstable patient, you could even consider cross-clamping the aorta or reboa to buy yourself time to get them to definitive management. It is a little bit controversial whether to go straight to preperitoneal packing or whether to go straight to angioembolization. And to be honest, different guidelines say different things and most people would say do what is practised in your institution and do what is based on your institution's resources. So if you have to call in an interventional radiology team and there's going to be a big delay, that's obviously not an option in an unstable patient and you'd be going to preperitoneal pelvic packing with the option to... Proceed to angioembolization after your packing as an adjunct for hemostasis. The other consideration in an unstable patient where you don't have any imaging is whether or not to perform a laparotomy at the same time. This is going to be guided on the findings of your EFAS scan and probably your clinical acumen as to whether or not you may need to perform a trauma laparotomy at the time of your preperitoneal pelvic packing. In a hemodynamically stable patient, the pathway is still a pelvic binder, but that patient's going to go to CT scan. And if there is a positive blush on the CT scan, that that patient should have angioembolization. Preperitoneal pelvic packing is performed, as we've mentioned, for a hemodynamically unstable patient with pelvic fractures to obtain hemostasis by packing the preperitoneal pelvis and this should be done against a fixed pelvic ring. So typically is performed at the same time that orthopedics will put an ex-fix device on. You perform a five centimetre midline suprapubic incision from the pubic symphysis and dissect down to the anterior fascia. You then divide the rectus in the midline until you can see the pubic symphysis directly and you're going to then be in the preperitoneal plane protecting the bladder you want to then use blunt dissection usually with your assistant pulling up on the muscle with a diva and you using a swab on a stick to peel the peritoneum off the abdominal wall and you're going to follow that plane around the curve of the pelvis and go all the way posteriorly until you feel the sacroiliac joints which is the first bony irregularity you're going to feel and you're pushing the rectum and bladder to the midline as you do this If there is a hematoma there, it's going to have done a lot of the dissection for you and you start on the side of the hematoma if there's a hematoma only on one side. You then want to pack at least two large packs into each side and you may need up to 10 on each side depending on the displacement of the pelvis and you roll them up and you start by pushing them posteriorly and inferiorly at the tip of the sacrum and then you build the packs up anteriorly and cranially. And the idea is that this is going to tamponade most venous bleeding and some arterial bleeding. And then you repeat this procedure on the other side. And as I've mentioned, the adjunct to this is that you'll go to CT afterwards and see if there is a blush. And if there is, you can take patients for embolization after this procedure. You can close the abdomen and put on a VAC dressing. And the packs, like any laparotomy, should be removed between 24 and 48 hours.
1: So what do you do if you need to perform a laparotomy at the same time as you're packing the pelvis?
0: So for a laparotomy, you can either pack the pelvis on the way in. So again, do your midline incision, go through the linear alba and don't incise the peritoneum and you can do your pelvic packing before you then open the peritoneum and you just try to limit opening the peritoneum uh, down to about five to six centimetres above the pubic symphysis. Or you can perform your laparotomy and then at the end of that procedure, grasp the peritoneum with a couple of arteries, one on either side, about five to six centimetres above the pubic symphysis, pull that towards the midline and then do the same procedure where you develop that preperitoneal plane and then perform your packing on the way out. In terms of fixing the pelvis itself, this is usually the realm of the orthopaedic surgeons. There's a few different x fix devices that they can use depending on the fracture pattern and sometimes they would do upfront oriF if the patient was well enough and they can do a delayed orF or actually just leave the Xfix fix inside you until the patient heals. It um, depends on the patient's other injuries and what fracture pattern that they have So talking about pelvic injuries leads us nicely to finishing off this episode by talking about bladder and urethral injuries. These injuries are commonly associated with pelvic fractures, with up to 10% of pelvic fractures having associated urinary tract injuries. Although they're not life-threatening injuries, if not managed appropriately, can result in long-term morbidity for patients. So Ben, did you want to start us off by talking about bladder injuries?
1: Sure thing. So a bladder injury can result from, as you said, a pelvic fracture and a boning injury to the bladder, or it may result from sudden compression of a full bladder leading to rupture or shearing forces applied to the bladder. And the patient may report difficulty voiding, a feeling of abdominal fullness or lower abdominal pain, or you may see bruising in the suprapubic uh, or perineal area. A key clue to bladder injury or generator urinary injury in general is gross hematuria. Uh, which is present in 95% of cases. If you're suspecting a possible bladder injury, the key investigation is a cystogram, and this can be done either under fluoroscopy or with CT.
0: Bladder injuries are broadly classified into intraperitoneal or extraperitoneal injuries. So intraperitoneal injuries is where the injury is spilling out into the peritoneal cavity. And so on your Cystogram, you may see contrast delineating loops of bowel versus a extraperitoneal injury where the urine is leaking out along the pelvic bones down into the scrotum or even the obturator area of the legs. The management of bladder injuries does depend on whether it is an intraperitoneal or an extraperitoneal injury. Intraperitoneal bladder injuries do demand surgical repair primarily. And you would approach a bladder injury by assessing its location. They say to actually perform a longitudinal incision on the anterior aspect of the bladder and to find the injury from within and then close it in layers if possible, the mucosa and then the muscle layer. The trick is to make sure that you can identify the ureters and protect them if the injury is nearby, and you may need to insert a ureteric catheter or a five French feeding tube if you don't have one of those in to make sure that you're not picking up the ureters with your suture. I have also read elsewhere that if you're in a hurry, you can just do a single layer mass suture of the bladder as well in a damage control situation. For extra peritoneal bladder injuries, these can mostly be managed non-surgically, Some contraindications to conservative management is if there's a bladder neck injury, if there's bony fragments in the wall of the bladder, if there's an infection in the urine or associated female genital tract injuries. If you do manage a extraperitoneal bladder injury conservatively, these patients are usually managed with a suprapubic catheter for up to two weeks. And this will allow most of these injuries to heal up. And you do a Cystogram at two weeks to make sure that there's no ongoing leak that needs repair. That's probably all we need to know about bladder injuries. I think mostly these would be left to urologists. They're not sort of a life-threatening problem that you'd need to deal with acutely. You can mostly call for help if there's more complex repairs that need to be done in the next few days after the injury. Tell us about urethral injuries.
1: So urethral injuries should be suspected in any pelvic trauma or perineal trauma. It could result from a straddle-type injury with sudden compression of the perineum, which can fracture the urethra against the pubic bones, or can be a sharp uh, injury to the urethra from a bony fracture of the pelvis. Sides that the patient may have a urethral injury include blood at the urethral meatus, trouble voiding, or a perineal hematoma. Or as you've talked about before, at rectal examination you may feel a high-riding prostate. I'm not really sure what that feels like.
0: I've read it described as a floating prostate, so the prostate being mobile, not fixed like it usually is, suggesting that it's been disrupted
1: So the key to diagnosis of a urethral injury is a retrograde urethrogram. And Amanda, you said you were going to tell us how to do that.
0: Yes, I did. You position the patient at 45 degrees obliquely, or if you can't do that, you actually need to get a C-arm that can go to 45 degrees. And you get a foley catheter, a small foley catheter, and flush it with contrast in order to remove any air bubbles. Under sterile technique, you insert the Foley catheter just inside the urethral meatus and you blow up the balloon with just one to two mils of saline. You take a pre-injection film and then you straighten the penis and insert 20 to 30 mils of contrast, taking static images as you inject the contrast. And you're looking for extravasation of contrast outside of the urethra. I always think it's a little offensive that the description of urethral injuries is always how to look for them, diagnose them and do imaging for them in men. But I have been reassured that it's very rare to get these injuries in women, mainly because male urethra is much longer and due to the firm attachment of the prostate is more likely to be damaged with blunt trauma because of the prostate being fixed and the membranous urethra is not. So you get a traction injury at that point.
1: I think the last thing to say is if there is a urethral injury, there's often an associated bladder injury, so um, worth investigating for that and getting in touch with a urologist. I haven't had a lot of experience with management of urethral injuries. I've seen some managed with a long-term urinary catheter uh, if it's an incomplete injury, and my understanding is that it is if it is a more complete injury, surgery is usually required. You might be able to elaborate on that.
0: Mm. Yeah. So there are a couple of options. The first is a conservative approach with delayed repair. So just putting in a suprapubic catheter and you can then repair the urethra like a, a number of weeks down the track when the patient's well. They do, however, talk about if you are going to conservatively manage trying to railroad a catheter through um, and realign the urethra does reduce the risks of strictures. And that can be even done a couple of days after the injury. If you're doing a laparotomy for another reason, then you can it's quite easy to railroad a catheter through the bladder uh, using you know, one coming each side and making sure you railroad it at the time. And so if you don't have the experience with that, asking someone else to come and do it at the time can um, improve the long-term outcomes for the patient. Primary repair of a urethral injury is indicated if there's a penetrating injury to both posterior and in- anterior urethra, if there's uh, associated rectal injury, if there's wide separation of the ends of the urethra or if there's penile fracture. And it basically involves primary surgical realignment over a Foley catheter, which is left in place for three to four weeks. Again, that's probably all we need to know about urethral injuries. Some of the long-term consequences of not managing a urethral injury or picking it up at the time can include um, incontinence and strictures. So important to think about it and make sure that you uh, diagnose it at the time and that you don't just put a catheter in a false passage. And that completes this episode on hollow viscous trauma and pelvic trauma with a little bit about bladder and urethral injuries thrown in there at the end. Thanks again for listening and for Ben for co-hosting this episode. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. It makes it easier for others to find and we love hearing your reviews. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!